All right. Hello, everybody. Good morning. Happy Sunday to you. Afternoon, evening, wherever it is you are. Uh, I am Spencer Campbell, a.k.a. Gila RPGs. Thank you all for your patience. We had a heck of a time figuring it out, but we figured it out. Uh, this is Coffee Break. Uh, I'm so excited. Coffee Break is my weekly hangout show where I sit down and chat with friends and amazing people in the indie RPG scene. And today I am joined by Vince Smith. I am so dang excited to be sitting here with Vince. Um, Vince, would you mind taking a second to introduce yourself to folks? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, hey, y'all. Uh, I'm Vince, a.k.a. Dichotomous Prime. Um, if you already know me by now, you probably know me from being uh, irreverent and irascible on Twitter about a number of different pro um, topics, whether it be RPG design, uh, social justice-related things, and uh, yelling at check marks who get too big for their britches. Um, and basically that. Uh, but also, in my other time, I maintain a blog over on Kofi, where I talk about things like narrative design, mechanics design, social justice-related things. Um, and there are a number of different kind of publicly available ones. There are ones for, like, subscriber cool exclusive stuff. Uh, and I've also worked on the... RPGs Unconquered and the Mnemonic Weaver's Almanac, uh, making cool stuff like magic systems and things like that. Heck yeah. I just threw Vince's uh, link tree in chat for folks who want to go see where all that very cool stuff is. Um, when I sit down with folks, you know, I don't think of this as like an interview show, but just like sitting around shooting the shit. By the way, you can swear if you want to swear. I, I oh god, well, I'm super glad <laughs> it's just like, what up, motherfuckers? <laughs> it's Sunday morning! Coming in hot. Yeah, exactly. Um, Whenever I do this, I like to sit down and like, think when did I first like see this person or interact with this person? And I definitely first found you on Twitter through the tabletop chop shop tag um, mm -hmm. which was like can you can you explain the the tag for folks who might not have have heard it or seen it yeah before? yeah absolutely so essentially i a couple of some i forget i believe that it was two summers ago myself and a number of different kind of creators in the space uh nick butler who created tidebreaker uh cd huanzan uh monkey's paw games aka nora rose uh a bunch of us kind of had this idea and at least for me um just kind of a lot of us were as indie rpg creators usually are exhausted by the monopoly of DD in the space and part of kind of the the hypothesis that i had is that part of the reason why DD maintains that monopoly among creators at least is that there's 30 plus years of infrastructure uh surrounding like if you're a gm and uh, what are GMs but fledgling designers? Um, your there are forums and blog posts and like you know uh, updates from Jared Crawford on how rulings work and all of these other things that like if you have a question about how do I balance X, there's an answer for you. But for almost everything else, there isn't that, and so there's a lack of. Um, I guess game design literacy or thinking about things in a sort of modular or breaking things down way to create player experiences uh, and all that sort of stuff. And essentially we wanted to create that um, 
that hashtag, um, at least that was kind of my, my approach to it, um, in order to start those conversations and go like, listen, designing, there is nothing fundamentally different between you and Jeremy Crawford and Chris Perkins, just because they make, like, them making six digits a year uh, does not mean that they are better designers than you. You can do what they do, and you can probably do it better. Uh, the only difference is that, like, the, they have access to infrastructure and resources that you don't. Um, so the idea of making it less scary and getting people kind of talking about, um, you know, well, okay, I had this really cool experience with this game, but why did I have that really cool experience? And part of that is always going to be, you know, having a good group, having good communication, having a good GM, if you are playing a game with a GM, that sort of thing. Uh, but part of that, and a large part of it, is curated through the way that you design a game and the structures and the tools that you choose and the things that you choose to omit and that sort of thing. And breaking those things down in a way that is um, more easily parsed by people who are just getting started so that the default isn't trying to make D&D work for everything because it can't, um, and just kind of going essentially the path of least resistance. Um, so yeah, that was kind of the origins of that. And now a lot of the time it's like if someone has some noodling designs on tabletop stuff, um, I'll just, I'll, a lot of the time I'll quote retweet it with like a tabletop chop shop thing right. so that if you search that and you're a fledgling designer being like, I don't know where to start, it can be like, cool, here's a bunch of people who have been doing this sort of thing for a long time at, for with varying different levels of influence and whatnot who are maybe asking similar questions. And even if you don't have a clear answer that you get from it, you at least have a direction that you can start to move uh, in that respect. Yeah, I I think it's very cool to see folks who are so open and willing to have like just the like, here's my stream of consciousness thoughts on design and sharing of the the the. the you know, the, our own design philosophies and everything like that. I see, you know, we see cool things with, um, like, people releasing, like, director's cuts or design commentary versions of their games to get, act, you know, to, to show you the, the tools that they used or the, the thought process that they used. The Chop Chop uh, tag is especially cool, I think, as a, like, as a, like, focusing point because... I have done so many like threads where I just I I just whatever I just vomit out all of my mechanical thoughts about something and then they don't really like it doesn't really go anywhere and it's meandering but like having it under something like the table chop 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 which is not easy to say fast I'm realizing <laughs> uh, is it's a nice sort of like centralized place like let's just like look at some design thoughts for the day is very cool. Mm -hmm. It's and it's interesting because uh, people who have been following me for a while might notice that I've had fewer of like the 20 plus tweet threads of that sort of thing, because there's definitely a couple of different, I don't want to say formulae, but like types of structure that those take mm. because sometimes, and especially as someone who is, uh, who is autistic and has ADHD, a lot of the time it's like I'm writing it out so that I can figure out what the thing is that I'm trying to make. 
And like that sort of like kind of diegesis is also just kind of a part of the design process for, for a lot of us. Um, but if I'm talking more on a specific topic, uh, I've started to realize that, you know, a structured sort of blog post or article where I can actually write out my notes and like if you it's funny because my design process looks almost exactly like my like article writing process okay. in that I have a, a Google Doc and I go uh, under a number of different headings I go like you know okay what are we writing here what's our central what's the point we're trying to make okay what are the things that we're using to try and make that point because I always think like you know thing with ADHD that I always think about is how um, I describe my internal kind of monologue as imagine you have an apartment in a building with really shitty walls where you can hear every other conversation going on at the same time uh, to where it's really hard to just kind of get a word in edgewise and kind of like isolate a single thought. Mm -hmm. But the nice thing, and this is also why I write things down analog rather than like digitally writing them down first is because I can think like a thousand different thoughts at once and it's really tough to deal with, but I can only write one thing at a time. Right. So it's just like, okay, well, we're going to isolate everything down to what this is. Um, and it's kind of the same way of talking about like game design, which uh, for the longest time when I have a really good experience of a piece of media, uh, it'll be like, wow, I'm really enjoying this, or hmm, this really didn't hit it for me. But then the next thought that happens is, okay, but why am I enjoying this so much? Okay, but why do I dislike this so much? And then I feel like that curiosity a lot of the times is the root of, even if not making your own stuff, just like analysis and understanding of different things. Yeah, I mean, I, I have caught some of your streams of, um, you know, playing like monster hunter or or other things like that and it's so fun to watch you play these games because you you will stop and pause and think about it and talk about why you're enjoying something or what is why something isn't resonating with you and it's i think it's especially fascinating for me to watch because it's the complete opposite of how i engage with video games or video oh games. interesting okay video games are my i'm turning my brain off time where i'm like i do not want to think about anything <laughs> uh, you know a hundred percent valid honestly and to be honest i there are some times where i wish i could do that it's and it's so but like but then i watch i watch people like you doing these like like i watch you talking about um like horizon or something like that and i'm just going like there's so much more going on and if i just took a breath and like <laughs> and thought about it uh it's very it's i love it it's so cool to see to see the sort of stream of consciousness sort of stuff it's um so my background i'm a cognitive psychologist and so oh interesting okay because my background is in psychology and philosophy excellent all right fellow psych friend um my very good friend in grad school her primary means of research was doing think aloud protocols while kids would read fables Right. Uh, and so every sentence or so, they were encouraged to kind of stop reading the story and just kind of like say what you're thinking. And it could be totally unrelated to the story. It's just whatever is on your mind. And 
it's it's fascinating the trends of thoughts that you get from kids reading fables but like the think aloud process in general is a really valuable source and i think that's what you're kind of capturing via the like the stream of consciousness streams where you are just like here's what i'm thinking right now and i love that mm -hmm. it's i and it's kind of interesting because the the think aloud protocols or like you'll probably i don't know how familiar your audience will be with it but like thought records for instance ended up being like like i've been through therapy a number of different times and like kind of dealing with like you know ahd depression all that kind of different stuff um and just kind of that was a really big thing that helped me primarily because like things like mindfulness don't quite work when you can't separate one thought from another mm. um so it just feels like trying to meditate in a room full of bees um and it doesn't quite work because uh, you're like fucking stop it stop it and you're just like they're constantly harassing you um but when you can kind of write down like okay specifically what am i feeling right now positive negative how intensely am i feeling it right now and kind of go like boop 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 and being able to break it down with that kind of modularity um kind of and it's interesting because I never really made that connection until now. Um, kind of was almost the, the burgeoning part of it because, you know, for a long time I've been like a very analytical kid and overthinking everything. Uh, like I said, can't really turn it off. Right. Um, and like, you know, when I was in high school, I like wrote movie reviews for like the, uh, the, the local newspaper and like um i was really big into film critique for a really long time and like i was the kid like the the person who got me into comic books for instance was the um the one of the librarians at my high school because i was the kid who would hang out with the librarians at lunch mm -hmm. and like we would just kind of like chat and dude literally lent me like the first 20 volumes of ultimate spider-man and oh, it was yeah. just like he would hand me three volumes and i would finish it in a day and come back and he would be like cool all right ready for the next ones okay cool and i would grab it and i would finish it in a night and we would do that and i would like lend him transmetropolitan and like uh preacher and like you know a bunch of the different kind of dc vertigo stuff that i was reading and the discussion that kind of came from that again kind of like informed the further ability to kind of have that conversation rather than just kind of like, I think this sucks. It's like, you know, that's, that's valid, but like <laughs> more importantly, let's talk about why you think that it sucks right. because you can't convince someone that a thing that you think sucks is actually good from a, an individual experience perspective. Like, and this is a thing that makes film critique nerds very upset when you say it and like things of like with respect to video games is that you you might be able to convince someone that they hadn't considered a certain dimension of a thing but if someone's experience of a thing is like you know i just didn't have that good experience myself you can't logic them into enjoying something um, which is interesting because I feel like a lot of the constructs surrounding game design and things like that is shaping in, a, in an almost very operant way the kind of like, okay, we shape this experience in this sort of direction and we give these kinds of incentives and kind of like, you know, 
frame the situation in this sort of way. And you can't do that in a universal thing, which is also why I have my whole rant on like, no, D&D can't be everything. Imagination can be everything, but D&D and imagination are not the same thing. Um, as much as the branding arm of Wizards of the Coast would like them to be the same. Thing. Right. Um, the game design um, and storytelling broadly is about making choices. And you can't like just be like, well, I choose everything and it can be anything. It's like, well, you can do that with your imagination. Absolutely. And that's why I think that anyone can be a designer. Right. Like I'm, I'm very big, like you too can be a hero sort of thing. Uh, because there is not some kind of special talent that makes you able or not able to design a thing because you've been telling stories ever since the first time that you got in trouble as a kid and had to make up something to convince your parent why you didn't get in, why you shouldn't be punished. Um, and ultimately, like, you know, there's storytelling and then there's writing and then there's game design and all of these different things are just different palette sets of tools that you can use to convey things. And I feel like the unique challenge surrounding game design is that you are giving tools to hand to someone else and you are giving up a certain degree of authorship um, to go, all right, well, I'm going to hand you this set of tools that's good for these subsets of stories. However, I don't know what kind of stories you're going to tell with them. However, what I can do is I can maybe curate and tell you, like, these tools are good for this. They're not super good for this other thing. Um, and I feel as though that requires a certain amount of creative honesty. Um, but if you have a a certain thing that's just like, hey, at some point I'm going to stop picking on D&D in this conversation. No, but right. just because of the amount of uh, space they take up, that if you are coming at something from a an economical and commerce centric perspective, I don't think that creative honesty is there because ultimately that turns into you're telling people not to buy your product. Um, and that's just like, that's a thing that's not really going to fly if that's your primary concern. Um, like we could also pick on like Daniel Fox and Zweihander also as an example of that. Um, like if we're if we're gonna like just to to basically take the boot off of Watts Wattsy's neck for two seconds, like second. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we'll get back there later. Uh, but like, there are a certain number of curated tools that you can hand to someone, but because of like one being a responsible designer with things like not including things that could be like very harmful, like you know mechanics for let's say sexual assault or some just something horrible basically um then that's also like a choice to to not include that um because basically it maybe not removes that framing because people have free will and if someone really really wants to include racism in their game i'm just going to not interact with that person and there's no game design decision that could stop them um but it's it's still kind of a matter of framing different things and giving people certain tools to do certain things. Uh, but anyways, I've been talking for five minutes straight, so please, by all means. Well, I, I mean, I love it. First of all, again, stream of consciousness, I'm all for it. I, I, I absorb it, and it's fantastic. Um, 
I have to just say, unrelated to everything that you just said, because it, it hit me early on, uh, I have to say I have a great appreciation for your your metaphors and analogies that you use. With the meditating with bees in a room full of bees, it's very evocative. I understand exactly what you're getting at. And the reason I appreciate it so much is um, that I studied, uh, so my, my PhD is in text and discourse processing. So it's about oh, interesting. Okay. language processing. The, the, what's going on with the brain is we read these interesting little squiggles on the screen and turn them into words and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Specifically, I studied in the realm of non-literal language. So metaphors, idioms, metonyms, things like that. So I mm -hmm. always have to just whenever somebody uses a particularly good metaphor or something, I have to go. I appreciate that uh, because mm -hmm. I spent way too much of my life studying them, and so. Could you tell me what a metonym is? I don't believe I'm familiar with that term. Yeah, so I love metonyms. Metonyms are a an example um, is like Washington wants to raise your taxes. Washington is a metonym where a single word represents like a larger base, like a, a collective of things or a whole host of things. So it's not that. Washington wants to raise your taxes. It's that the House and Senate and Congress and President and everybody else who are involved with the process or to like if you are at a restaurant and you refer to a customer based off of the order that they have, like the ham, the ham sandwich at the counter wants more coffee. The ham sandwich is representing this gotcha. person. Um, yeah, a collective or an abstraction sort of thing. Exactly. Um, I love a good old metonym. It's it's interesting because um, I don't know if you uh, know um, on Twitter John East uh, at Yes John yeah uh, who, yeah yeah uh, they um, they they studied linguistics uh, among other things um, and recommended me the book uh, The Unfolding of Language uh, by a Guy I'm gonna murder his last name Guy Dusher. Um, and uh, it was really interesting to read because uh, a big part of the uh, the thing that he talks about is how um, so many of our like metaphors and things like that, uh, or not even necessarily like metaphors presently, but ways of speaking mm -hmm. began life as metaphors and then previously before then started it as literal terms for physical phenomenon, mm -hmm. but they became so frequently used that they basically they became dead metaphors because yes. people forgot that they were metaphors in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, like the idea that, um, uh, let's see, uh, Congress erupted in conflict is like, Congresses don't erupt. Right. Congresses, like, Congresses of people argue, but volcanoes erupt, geysers erupt, like, that sort of thing. And you don't really, and it seems very kind of, like, queeny to, to, to really kind of, like, get into it. It's like, well, technically, it's like, yes, 300, 400 years later, that is a very kind of, like, pedantic thing to do. But, you know, those things have real roots that existed. Like to say that uh, the, the word like being thrilled by something, mm. uh, the, and this is more present in the UK expression thrilled to bits, um, to be a thrill is a, it's kind of a form of like 
drill drilling or like dissecting something like it's a physical tool that you would use to pierce something um and you can see the roots of that in the way that people talk about it but we don't talk about it because it's now several centuries and a few countries removed from its original usage um but i think that exploring not only the actuality of that origin but also the process by which things are abstracted and change over time is very useful for understanding not just that but other phenomenon for instance uh one of the more recent uh subscriber exclusive things that i did for kofi uh was an article on what i call visual touchstones which is basically the idea that there are certain things in films and tv and things like that that you just look at and you have an implicit feeling that a thing is about to happen that is usually related to a trope, a genre, something like that, or a narrative beat. Uh, one of the examples that I used was the badass person cracks their neck or cracks their uh. knuckles. Um, <laughs> and it was interesting because I started doing some research for it. Um, and each of these things has a an initial usage that popularized a certain trope. Um, the cracking the neck and cracking the knuckles uh, most likely was popularized by the fight scene between Chuck Norris and uh, Bruce Lee in one of their movies. But at the beginning, at the beginning of that fight scene, each of them does like an extended warm up wall. Like you know, they kind of remove their like, like their their gi, right. gi shirt and like it's a whole extended thing. But then you see an uptick in that precedence of that particular trope over the source over the series of years, and it gets smaller and smaller. But the consistency of the context in which it appears carries through the original meaning of it, which is you know. You know, Morpheus is fighting Neo. Like, you know, this there is about to be a throwdown right. for some reason. And even when those things are inverted, like I use the example of episode three of the Netflix series Arcane, where like, you know, Vi, uh, you know, the scrappy teenager is fighting with this huge tattooed like bad guy enforcer, and he walks up to her on the bridge and he cracks his neck. And then she just shoryukens him into like another lifetime and he goes down in one hit. And the thing is, is why that inversion works is because it sets the expectation that this person is intimidating and a bruiser and formidable and then uses that expectation to invert it by immediately like, you know, normally if that person loses, they lose in a very kind of close fight and really gives the hero a run for their money. The fact that they don't in this scene is significant. Um, so, like, and all of that started from reading the unfolding of language and talking about the evolution of dead metaphors and the coral reef of language that grows over top of them. So, I love dead metaphors. Uh, I remember reading Lakoff and Johnson uh, a long time ago, back in undergrad, as my first exposure to, to dead metaphors. Um, my uh my go-to example is the is uh and, and this is an example that then doesn't require even necessarily centuries uh is blockbuster right we use the word blockbuster as like a smashing success at the box office but a blockbuster right. previously was a bomb meant to devastate a city block uh and we have changed it and it, we don't we never use it the word blockbuster in that form anymore but it has now grown and then, and then, dead but is exactly like you said. They're a coral reef. They they expand. Things grow on top of it. Um, that's a big 
realm of my research is the sort of like clustering of metaphors and the shifting of how one processes them as they go from highly novel to the range of conventional to all the way to to dead um i love i've not i have not had a chance to talk about this stuff or nerd out <laughs> this stuff in a long time so i'm highly appreciative mm -hmm. of it. i'm into it yeah it's and i mean honestly i and this is something that i've talked a little bit with uh burst of hope um uh jess over at uh utopia about is getting to talk to people about the nerdy stuff that they don't normally get the opportunity to talk about is also one of my favorite things because like for instance like you know everyone hears like uh brutal dan like danny uh over over on twitter talk about like board games and like you know representation and things like that and everyone hears like you know abria iyengar talk about like gming and all of that sort of stuff but like you know Abria is also like was like just below Olympic level athlete when she was in college. And like I think that uh and if I remember I hope I remember this correctly, she was like sidelined by an injury and so like didn't really get a chance to do it. And I'm like, that I wanna know yeah, about a... that. Like what's the thing that you never get a chance to rant about that you want to like, like, I want to learn that about you. I want to hear Danny talk about, like, nutrition and, like, you know, um, just kind of, like, posterior chain and, like, mobility-related things related to fitness as well as, like, all of these sorts of things and assumptions and things surrounding, like, diet culture and, like, fat phobia in addition to all of this other stuff. Because I feel as though because a lot of the time um, – social media is about kind of branding and what do people associate with you when they um, like go to your page or whatever. And it shrinks a lot of people down to a couple of like data points right. of like, this person's a designer, Vince is a bully, <laughs> uh, you know, all of this sort of stuff. Um, but you'd never really get that chance to fully realize your experience of like a person's complete nature uh, and that's why I tend to enjoy things like podcasts. Mm -hmm. But even then, like, you know, when people market a podcast, a lot of the time they're like, uh, you know, well, this is a podcast about bit, bit, and bit. And, like, so the things tend to orient around what someone is known for. Right. Um, and so, but I think, you know, again, this kind of is the, the ADHD curiosity in me, uh, which is, like, I, I hear like a thing that doesn't quite fit the pattern and I immediately zoom in on it. I'm like, okay, but what about that? Like, it's very, uh, it's very Columbo and just kind <laughs> of, um, to not date myself with a fucking <laughs> metaphor from the eighties. Um, but the, and it's also kind of like why I'm particularly proficient at like sussing out patterns that unfortunately, like, you know, patterns of, like, that's going to turn into a cult personality thing, and in about six months, we're going to get a shitty story about, like, person X doing Y. But unfortunately, and this this sounds like a humble brag, but I really don't mean it as one, is, like, I'll, I'll do the, like, you know, 
the redcoats are coming thing, yeah. and people will be like, what? But this person's such a, like, nice person. I'm like, okay, but consider this, 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 and this, that they there's, like, kind of this omission of this on these situations, and you just kind of, like, watch the landscape and these patterns form in this certain way. Right. Um, and, like, it seems like an exaggeration until you, like, six months down the road, it's like, oh, right, it's that thing. But because I feel like the long game picture, especially with the amount of overload that social media and things throw at people, makes it difficult for people to kind of, like, pick up on the, like, we've been here before, this keeps happening, and, like, you know, the positivity game of that sort of thing, um, encouraging people to just kind of let it happen again, um, is just... When you do that, like, hyper-condensed over a couple of months, people maybe pick up on it. But when it's, like, six months, eight months, a year, uh, people kind of don't necessarily see it as, like, parts of the same landscape. Unless you have someone who spends a bunch of time to collate a lot of those data points and come up with something cogent. Um, So, yeah, that's it's it's kind of... It's it's a blessing and a curse because I feel like the the same pattern recognition in terms of people's experiences, positive or negative, is also what allows me to put together a mechanic that's like, okay, but let me make an engine that like if you put the right kinds of fuel in it, reproduce relatively reliably these kinds of experiences that people associate with. Um a superhero game or like, you know, the creativity of making your own magic spell and things like that. Um, but then it's also like, you know, you, you kind of see these things, but it kind of can be relatively isolating a lot of the time, unfortunately, because there are certain patterns that people are very much incentivized to not want to right. see. We were having a very similar sort of conversation about this in the Gila RPG's Discord this morning about the TTRPG family hashtag and the yeah the it makes my skin crawl. I, it makes me very uncomfortable. Yeah, <laughs> very much. And it's the thing that gets me because that's kind of the the like entry point is that skin crawling feeling of like I don't know if I trust this. Um, and then kind of the the next tier up is I start looking for the people whose brand is very much that. Right. Who are going like, who are then saying, well, this is kind of like creepy and I don't know if I trust it. But then there's an inconsistency there with the still like the choices of vocabulary that they use. Because like you may not be using the TTRPG family, but you talk about like, hey, friends and like all of this sort of stuff. And I love you all and that sort of thing. And it's like, even if you're not saying ex- saying it explicitly, those things are still conveying a very specific type of relationship, um, which like, you know, you can you can do that. But like, don't be surprised if then people ask you for a level of connection and assume that you are closer in friendship than a parasocial relationship would otherwise intend. Because you cannot sell people on your product using love and friendship and connection and then expect them to not want that from you. Um, And I feel as though there is a very large part uh, and like, you know, frankly, very white part of the community, though not always, 
um, that will very much lean into the like ooh woo like soft um, <laughs> family sort of thing, and but then also try and like have it both ways in the like I'm outspoken unless it's someone who actually has influence or power in the space, and then it's like complete silence. Right. Like I. I don't want to say I popularized it, but like I use the term one XP rats to refer to racists in the comments who are first name lots of numbers. Um, because basically there's this thing that I find where influential accounts will take pride in shouting down racists with no power in the replies of people who made their account last week and then make a huge show about quote retweeting it and dunking it in front of a whole bunch of their followers. But then the more subtle ways that actually perpetuate a lot more harm than like, you know, Slapnut69 who made their account two weeks ago um, people who own discords, people who decide who gets hired and who doesn't, um, people who greenlight um, huge campaigns that are based off of uh, cultural appropriation and things like that, who exclude people of color and queer people and like put disabled people at risk. All of those people, like you don't hear that about, and then you start hearing things about like negativity and tearing people down. Um, that's kind of another one of those things that it's like, you know, you going into the replies and farming one XP rats does not impress me. It's like, because it's very much a, like, you risk exactly nothing and you accomplish exactly nothing, but reinforcing your brand to an audience that look how much of an ally I am. And it's just kind of like allies speak truth to power. If the only people that you are willing to speak truth from are people who, like would not threaten like your power in the world. that's not really allyship that's not enacting allyship um and that's something that i find a lot not just in tabletop rpgs but it's more a matter of because there is such a bottleneck of influence once you get beyond i'm gonna say five thousand followers on twitter or something like that just to put an arbitrary number on it um it starts kind of being a lot of like, you can name a dozen people and like, that's who like, you will know their names and faces and like, that is who you will know. And then you get above 10 K and that shrinks to about eight to 10 people. And then you like get above 50 K and it's about like the same amount. Mm. Um, And it's just this, you know, in a lot of very broad things, like for instance, the video game industry, um people like a uh, good friend and awesome person uh pleasantly twisted will opt to talk a lot about um topics rather than people mm-hmm. because these things are so widespread um and i think that's a very useful way to talk about things uh, in a lot of scenarios when it comes to employment and wages and things like that with respect to especially the what i'll clumsily call the upper echelon of of tabletop games I start talking about people. And the reason why I start talking about people is because the influence in terms of who gets to like control those gates and everything becomes very, very bottlenecked. Mm. Uh, even if not like formally in terms of like, this person's the CEO or president of blah, 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 blah. There's still like a very concentrated number of people that like 
know a lot of those people and be like, you shouldn't work with that person. And, and like immediately that person is like, why is everyone just ghosting me all of a sudden? And I feel as though those people are not uh, John 3645 MAGA 420 like in the replies. They're they are the people who fans. know and are savvy enough to impression manage. Uh, like they know to not say the quiet part loud and they know how to convey certain media brands. But because it's not overt and super obvious uh, until like someone messes up, people, it'll just happen. And as long as they know how to say the right things, they'll they'll let that happen. Uh, Adam Coble is an example. Um, Brandon Dixon, Swordsfall is another example. Like, you know the keys to press and you know the mouth sounds to make. Uh, and a lot of the time, um, because of the, the overflow of, like, information that people get, but then also there's a certain, like, people are averse to conflict, um, they don't really want to actively engage that because, to be fair, the world is exhausting and it is work to do that. But enacting allyship is work and doing the right thing is work. And unfortunately, there is no easy answer to, but who's safe in the TTRPG industry? Can someone just put your in the replies, your creators who you know are safe? It's like, I, I, I don't know how to tell this to you, but there, there is no like easy list that allows you to turn your brain off and go, okay, these are the people who I can trust. You have to look into it. You just, you, you have to. Um, and that's an unfortunate reality. Yeah. The it's, um, first of all, once again, great metaphor with the one XP rats. Gotta, gotta shout out that because <laughs> that's wonderful. Um, yeah, it's with the, you know, um, Especially when you at that that last point you said of like, is there a nice list or something like that? I've been seeing that a lot on Twitter lately of people who are asking like, okay, who should I be following that is quote unquote the the right people to be following or something like that? And like yeah. that coupled with follow Fridays where it's just like a bombardment of lists where that's how the bad actors get slipped in and then associated with twelve other people who are not associated with that name like you couple those two things together and it's just it's a nightmare right and it 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 truly is then just becomes this mindless this mindless clicking and farming of the followers and things like that so it is just like oh mm -hmm. i this person i know said that these people are safe i'm gonna just say they're all safe then and i will i'll be happy and these are the right people to be following Influence, and if I can have a single thing that people take away from me in terms of a saying on this, influence is not a surrogate for critical thinking. You cannot farm out your, your savvy of investigating and making informed decisions to someone based off of how many followers they have. You, you can't do it. I don't care how many people say that they're an amazing human being. Um, if their actions follow that description, then you'll find that out uh, when you look into what they're doing and the consistency or inconsistency with what they do. But there is no surrogate for your critical thinking. You can't hand that to someone else and be like, you do this for me. Right. And it can be tempting to do that. And uh, a lot of the times it's because it's everyone's exhausted. 
um, everyone is like repeatedly being traumatized and everything like that. But if your priority is wanting to make just decisions, those are things that you have to invest time into. There is no finish line. There are there are times. Um, one thing that um, was brought up to me during the Black Lives Matter protests in in 2020, um, you know, great timing with Black History Month and everything, is learn to rest, not to quit. And the reason for that is that there is no finish line. There's no time where you're like, okay, we the credits roll and everything is happily ever after. Is like there there isn't a point at which that happens. There's always another thing, and that doesn't mean that every day you like every day you like suit up and do it, and you like wear yourself down to a bloody nub. I've had to learn that lesson very much because I'm I'm big like Kirishima from like My Hero Academia energy to where like I want to be the shield for everyone, mm. and that's why like I'll hop into a Brian W. Foster's mentions and be like, "Fucking come at me! I will destroy <laughs> you and all of you." Um, and, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but he hasn't, uh, been doing talks anymore, but, you know, uh, but, you know, we'll just kind of leave that at that. Uh, but I've had to learn, like, it's, you don't have to take on every fight and ultimately not resting and doing that is a form of self-harm and also makes you worse at helping people. Yeah. Um, but by that same token, the 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 way to do it is also not completely shut down and farm out that like decision making process to someone because uh, a bunch of people said like they're an amazing being and everyone should follow them as it's just like that's not how being a human being works right. unfortunately um and uh let's see a r a r b co uh arb let's see uh do or no it was bad quail who was saying it's better to be an accomplice than an ally and that's i i definitely feel that the thing that i have shifted my thinking in is that i don't talk about being an ally or being an accomplice because and you're you'll probably appreciate this as like you know a cognitive psychologist and someone who has studied language because both of those things are are adjectives whereas both of those the in my opinion the best way to kind of go about those things is thinking of them as verbs right. you're not being an ally you are enacting allyship like you are in what ways can you be an accomplice because that's a thing that you have to wake up every day and make the decision to do. Um, a lot of people, like for instance, you'll see someone who puts ally in their bio and then be really fucking racist um, and like all of that sort of thing. But they, if they go Black Lives Matter and then the, but then the actions don't line up, then it doesn't really matter what that person says. Um, like there's there's kind of like the whole thing where like anytime critical role is brought up for like racism and like you know cultural appropriation and things like that uh people will go but they are amazing allies it's like i feel like part of that is a symptom of people making that a badge or a part of their identity rather than just like that's an action that you choose to do every day uh and like what is a what is trust but a an ultimately a positive risk assessment that someone will live up to what they say they're going to do um and i think that thinking of it in terms of actions rather than like this is a static trait that a person has 
because a person who can be like very just in one arena can do some awful shit in another arena for instance um like um let's see there there have definitely been just like say people who like fight for for representation of like you know a certain marginalized group but who are really really bigoted against another marginalized group and i feel as though because there's this very unified idea of like this person's an ally or that sort of thing that when those things having to do with intersectionality come up people have a lot of trouble parsing that and going like because they're thinking of like well is this person a good person or is this person a bad person and it's like the answer to that question is less important than the fact that that is the wrong question and the the, the question is like the per the thing that they did over here is good um However, this thing is still bad. And furthermore, you don't balance one against the other. You say, this thing was bad and this thing is good. And then depending on how they decide to react continuously, um, like if they, if they own it, if they like make recompense to the group who was harmed, and if they do that, then that group, and that group specifically... Uh, can decide whether or not that person is is worthy of that forgiveness. Um, but this whole thing of, like, morality and justice is not a ledger that you try and stay in the black. It's just an ongoing thing that you, that you do, and you are evaluated based off of those, uh, like, because everyone will mess up, but, like, how you react and own or not own that mess up and, like, seek to do the right thing is ultimately what will kind of determine where you're at and how you're approaching this. Is it about you or is it about the people who you are trying to help or give the things that they are asking for rather than you deciding for them? We see this, I see this a lot in, um, in academia, this idea of uh, universities, because I, I, I teach at a university, so at the university level, schools wanting to label themselves as as allies and things like that, and and that they have that they have a commitment to diversity or um, you know or anything like that, and then it's the the follow through is is just it's never there, right? So like for example, one of the biggest things that we see in um, in a lot of uh, higher education institutions is you will see a push in hiring a uh, diverse uh, faculty, like uh, uh, like increasing diversity in your faculty body. Uh, and then, great, check that off. And then there's no uh, structure in place for retention of yeah. the, the diverse faculty. So that inevitably, two, three years out, they burn out, they have no support they're gone and so we just have to go back well look we hired three more professors of color and you're like well but what happened to the ones that you got three years ago <laughs> where are yeah, they yeah exactly <laughs> a thing that i notice and this is very much um kind of present in a lot of the this the same spaces that we um that we inhabit is um <laughs> the term is diversity equity and inclusion mm -hmm. but any time that you see an actual statement on it, 
a lot of the time it's like diverse inclusive spaces it'll be like so what i remember there being an e in there yes i remember there being an e in there somewhere could you could you please answer me as to where where that e went please please answer quickly like and that's the thing that like had to do with like when critical role was talking about like their their uh marquette campaign or whatever and being like we hired diverse diversity consultants or like you know um the the thing having to do with the game sifu right now is another example yeah. of like we hired cultural consultants like yes but here's the thing you hired them after the thing was already decided that you were going to make that as like a a full like all white developer on both of these projects uh they didn't have like decision making the only thing that they could maybe do is contribute to it being less harmful and even then the thing about being a cultural consultant or sensitivity reader is that the people you work for don't have to actually enact your recommendations. Like, so a lot of the time, and I talked about this during the Horizon Zero Dawn playthrough, uh, is that what cultural consultants end up being is compensated consent uh, to the people so that they can be like, okay, but we're going to pay you a certain amount to say, to stamp not racist on our project. <laughs> and then when people decide to criticize it, we can go, we, we hired a cultural consultant and they said it was okay. And it's like, well, of course they said that it was okay because they like, you paid them to do it. And in a lot of the time, the only spaces uh, and positions on these projects, they're not writers, they're certainly not directors, they're certainly not project managers, they're consultants. So it's that or don't get hired at all. And that's kind of the main problem. I'm, I'm no longer impressed with places that want to tell me, uh, we have a cultural consultant. It's like, cool, where are not just one, but several writers of color uh, several queer and trans people of color, uh, several disabled people of color on your teams. Uh, because even just having one, that one person isn't going to uh, represent the whole of like marginalized experiences, no matter how many marginalized identities they, they fall in the intersection of. Because if one person is not diverse, a team is diverse. And like you make that decision when you start uh, like when you start the project it's the same thing that we were talking about yesterday when i made a thread about workers wages in in ttrpgs and like per word rates and, i mean that's per word rates there's a whole other problem with that but that's another conversation um where you decide at the start of your project that you are going to pay people equitably and then you decide how large of a project you can afford based off of those wages. Um, when all of those things are after the fact, like they become kind of squeezed into the margins and hence, you know, people who are marginalized and they never fully get any kind of executive control over these projects or decision-making or any of these sorts of things. Um, and just, yeah, no, I... These are things that when I bring them up to people directly, rather than just very kind of generalized threads that influential people can look at and be like, oh, well, thank goodness that's not us. That's bad. But thank goodness that we're not in that picture. Spoilers. 
they were in fact in that picture um then you get brought up on negativity and like all of these sorts of stuff and you get called a bully it's like no i'm i'm bringing this to you because you are the person with the money who is making these decisions um and like until that leadership changes nothing changes right it's um and absolutely loot the room. I absolutely believe that those people get used as shields. Yeah, Chris, 100% on that. Um, it's really interesting that point you made earlier of like, what's that? What's that? Um, that middle letter that oftentimes gets dropped. The the equity side of things. Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting. Um, so I won't get into specifics just because. Uh, but so my partner is also an educator, teaches at a high school level. So I'm at college level she's at high school level um both schools doing big work in dei right now um my school kind of getting started with it uh and uh hers has been doing it forever because they have probably the most diverse student body i've ever seen which is very cool but not in faculty Uh, right and so it's really interesting she 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 may, she's she said something to me last year and it just stuck with me, which is like your school, Spencer, is focused on the first letter, diversity. Um, when you have to just realize that diversity already exists, right? Like that that's the reality. So it's yep. you don't need a committee for that, right? The the you need to start moving on to the next parts here. Um, and that's been something that has stuck in my head because yeah, absolutely. That's there. So what you need the you need the other parts to like foster it or to, to to maintain it. Going back to that sense of like horrible retention rates for faculty of color at higher ed level and things like that, right? Like they're there. We just mm-hmm. don't keep them because we have it's a completely inequitable situation for them. There's zero support. Um, right. So and. I feel as though kind of the in in conjunction with like why representation is important but wholly insufficient in and of itself is um uh guy who's the the newest mayor of New York who's a former cop mm-hmm. like every uh, gentleman is black um everything that I hear out of that mouth is fashy speak um and it's that thing of like yeah you can't hire like you can't check mark hire someone based solely off of their their membership in a group and be like okay done we're good but unfortunately um uh neoliberalism and kind of this like center left sort of thing has turned diversity into a sort of currency mm-hmm. uh and you'll see it when for instance um uh, an example from the whole Swordsfall thing of like, um, you know, mis- there was an example where um, uh, Swordsfall like mis- misgendered a, uh, a non-binary person. Um, and someone in the replies was going like, yeah, uh, he misgendered a, uh, a non-binary, disabled, like all of this sort of stuff. And you'll see it when people will start listing out like the different sorts of things. And it's like, okay, so... And this feels like a nitpicking thing, but since we were talking about like language and what language is used for, um, the way that those additional marginalizations is being used in that scenario is as a currency to go, 
it would be bad enough if this person misgendered this non-binary person, which it is, 100%, no debate about that. Um, however, it's extra bad because this person belongs to this group and this group and this group. And the reason why that's not a good way to frame things is that people who do have the savvy to be able to use that, when they, uh, like, say, when someone like a, uh, a Natalie Wynn contrapoints does something really fucking, like, racist or transphobic, people can go, uh, oh, you're, you, you want to come after a queer trans woman? Okay, misogynist and all of that sort of thing. And, like, people are able to kind of, like, cash that out only because it's placed as currency and only because the only reason they're able to do that is because of that overemphasis on diversity rather than like equity and inclusion. Because when you start getting to equity and inclusion, it means you're going to have multiple people in the room and there's going to be multiple perspectives uh, of those various different experiences, multiple intersections and things like that. And we start talking about like the principles that underlie social justice movements rather than just well, okay, we put together a Benetton ad or a Captain Planet team looking team worth of people, and we're so we're good, right? It's like, yeah, but all of those people are libertarians, but they're Asian libertarians. Like, and it's just kind of like, okay, but it doesn't super matter if like your team is Andrew Yang, Terry Crews, and like, you know, all of these people who don't really give a shit about any of those topics anyways. Like, <laughs> it's a nightmare dream team. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is it's just kind of like, you know, through our powers combined, we are a capitalism planet. Like, all right, great, amazing. Oh, no. The worst planet. Yeah. <laughs> um Oh noop noop soup, I think, is uh, intersectionality dismantling your diversity one step at a time. Yeah, it's uh, And that's the thing is it's like it's tough to have these conversations because a lot of the time it is this very, you know how we were talking about like, you know, um, farming out your, your critical thinking skills and simplifying them down to, um, you know, I should listen to this person or these are the things that I should say and think and kind of like repeating these log lines and things like that rather than directly engaging the topic at hand and all of those sorts of things is that it's placed people in a very, like, Justice 101 sort of position where people are not super prepared to have those conversations. And if you kind of reply to it in that way or, like, kind of bring up as, like, yes, but this, this person is also really homophobic, be like, oh, okay, so you want to shout down, insert my marginalization, and it's like... If, if, if there was a pattern, and we come back to patterns, as we were talking about earlier, if there was a pattern where suddenly this person only wants to talk about homophobia when it's black people, which is a thing that happens a lot, uh, then we can talk about someone like, that's suspicious. We start giving that person a side eye real hard. But the criticism that like don't support homophobic people doesn't go away if that person belongs to another minority or is even like a gay person, Pete Buttigieg being an example. Um, and, but there isn't that level of like nuance with it because the discourse ends at 
I should support this person. I should support this person. I should not support this person. They're bad. This is the thing that I should say. Mm -hmm. And just like slotting these things in, in a very simplistic sort of way, um, does not enable growth because it is more about avoiding looking transgressive uh, in public. And it's a lot more about uh, social performance and things like that, which like, you know, unfortunately is, is just never something that one, I've been super good at, and two, something I have any interest in really doing is also unfortunately the reason why like, for instance, I struggle to find work because I just I just don't really have interest in doing that. Like, if something's wrong, it's wrong, regardless of whether or not someone is my friend or I don't like someone. Like, I have very much said on numerous occasions and carried out that, like, I don't need to like you to fight for you. And I will and I have. And I, someone, like, is like, yeah, but I supported you. It's like, yeah, and that's why I'm coming to you in private to say that this is not cool what you did. If you if you were like unkind and just thoroughly someone who I thought that I should I was not able to have this conversation with, then I would be like reading you for filth on the timeline right now. But I'm not <laughs> because of the fact that like I've seen you do just things before. And that's why I'm wanting to come to you and say, this is not it. Right. This is like, I don't know what you were thinking, but this is not it. Um, but that is the amount of clemency that someone gets beyond that. It's not this thing where, you know, your friendship with me or your relationship with me is a pass for you to not be held accountable in the same way that other people are. Um, but unfortunately that is not super consistent within the space that we find ourselves. And so that's kind of one of the many, many barriers that, uh, we need to kind of dismantle, um, I am going to run for a bio break real quickly, if that's all right, and I will be right back. Yes, that works for me. Folks, Vince is taking a quick bio break, but also we're probably going to wrap up here soon anyway. Uh, I've got a whole day of errands that I've got to go on, so I'm going to just vamp here, dance on stream for a little bit while Vince goes and does his thing. <laughs> How are we all doing this morning? Checking in with folks. I also definitely, I definitely also remember certain talks of people in the TTRPG community encouraging their marginalized friends to act as shields for years and years. Yeah, we see a lot of that. Hmm. Just vamping. Just vamping and hanging out here, folks. While Vince is gone. This has been, this has been great. I hope you all are enjoying this. Bad quail had pancakes for breakfast. Great. Excellent. Excellent. We are doing a bow tasting very soon. Going to try some bow from a food truck. So that's my life. That's where I'm at right now. I'm very excited about it. Podcast people, if you're listening to this right now, just know that Vince has stepped away and I'm just here filling the air. <laughs> Will I edit this? Absolutely not. I don't do edit any editing. I barely cut off the beginning and end of streams.
It's interesting that second thought of uh, the internet slowly moving back to don't trust anyone, don't give out details. From back in the early days. That's what you were supposed to do. Not tell anybody anything. <laughs> Uh, oh, well, I guess I can talk about next week. Next week, I've got uh, Nick Butler, uh, creator of Tidebreaker. Very excited about that. Going to have him on. We're going to chat. We're going to have a good old time. We're both into, like, super, like, wacky, over-the-top fighting and combat and stuff. So I think it's going to be really fun having a conversation uh, about all of that good stuff. But let's see here. For the rest of the month, that's next week. Then we've got Jay, I think, is next. Jay Dragon after that. And I think Sam is coming on after that to talk about a Lumen game. I have to check my calendar. I'm not going to check it right now. <laughs> but I think I see in here Vince coming back. Well, hello. Hello, hello. Uh, <laughs> I was kind of going to grab you right beforehand, but I didn't want to interrupt your, your bio break. I, I've got to wrap up in the next couple of minutes anyway, because we're, okay. we're, um, we're going to go do a, uh, a food truck tasting. We're doing a very small wedding soon, and we're going to have some bow as the food truck, which I'm very excited Ooh, about. Ooh, nice. Um, so... I gotta kinda wrap this up here in the next couple of minutes anyway. So um Vince, this has been really, really fantastic. Um this has been I wanna like continue the conversation. I wanna do like part two, three, four, five, six, seven, I am I um honestly, if there's ever like a week that I'm not working at my day job and you don't have a guest or something, then I'm like, Yeah, no, absolutely. Let's let's talk and like maybe we can talk about RPGs that we like instead of like the industry sucks. All of you people, you're cowards! Like, you know, all of this sort of See, stuff. I have to I have to have you back for a second episode anyway, just because I want to know what you're working on, your design stuff, because you mentioned it at the top. I'm like, but what are you doing? What are you working on right yeah, now? Yeah, exactly. This is a continuing problem in, in my life. It's like, yes, but the capitalists, though. Right. Like... <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, this was absolutely lovely, and uh, it was super fun coming on and chatting with you. Absolutely. Yeah, Vince. Um, as we as we sort of uh, wind things down here, uh, where can folks find you? I'll go find links and throw them in the chat, and make sure they're in like the vods and everything. But like, where can the good folks find you and support you uh, on on online? Uh, primarily, um, I am mostly nowadays doing written work over on my Kofi, Kofi.com slash Dichotomous Prime. Um, I occasionally stream, but a lot of the time it's kind of like, you know, to break up the, the, the boredom and like do a little bit of kind of different video content. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, and as well, um, you can contact me via my email that's in the link tree. Um, as as well as on my Twitter, at Dichotomous Prime, uh, because I am looking for freelance work. I do um, 
mechanical and narrative design, uh, cultural consultation, and also just con consultation on narrative and mechanics. Uh, I specialize in creating ludonarrative harmony. Basically, if you came up with a thing that you want to make gameplay feel a certain way, but it's not quite fitting that, then like that's that's what I do. That's essentially my my thing that I am probably the strongest in when it comes to that sort of stuff. Um, and just yeah, we can talk UI, we can talk UX, we can talk like all of the different kind of mechanics and choices of tools. So yeah, those are kind of the main things where you can find me. Heck yeah, I've seen plenty of people shout you out on Twitter for for that very service that you mentioned of like making the mechanics sing in in harmony with the intent and the vibe that someone is going with like that's very very cool right as 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 a designer to like see the see the the game working with you on on what you want instead of just like uh this mechanic is one i'm familiar with uh i'm gonna i'm gonna just shove it into this scenario and see if it works exactly exactly and you know as more people gain that like greater feeling of the texture of like this kind of doesn't feel right i think that we'll see more of that i certainly hope to so i hope so i i think i i am like you where you said you were mentioning the stuff at the top of just like anybody can be a game designer and i want everybody to be a game designer or at least absolutely that they they have it in them and just that the act of gming is the act of design and so like blur you know learn from all 100 100 percent. let's let's do this thing well heck yeah everybody please go support vince on all of those places um i'm gonna i'm gonna reach out to you about some stuff in the near future now because i've got a absolutely <laughs> i look forward to it um and let's see wrapping up um i think i mentioned it earlier uh next week is uh nick butler creator of tidebreaker very excited to be talking excellent game nick yeah and yeah no one of my favorites i'm very very excited about that uh i was saying earlier how uh tidebreaker big like stylistic combat and fun stuff like that i'm very much into all of that so i think it's gonna be a real good time talking about i don't know our favorite fights or something the whole time mm -hmm. it'll be good y'all hang yeah absolutely if y'all come here and enjoy my kind of approach to design things Come here next week and listen to Nick talk. Nick is uh, Nick is a good good dude and made a really really. Oh no. Be good and fun game. So absolutely. Excellent. It froze for just a second where you said a really really, and then it was like a long pause, and I was like a really really what a really really yeah, <laughs> just like really terrible person. Don't oh, no. no. Nick is Nick is awesome. He Tidebreaker is an excellent game. Um, I the greatest kind of praise that I can give it is that it's been a long time since I found a game that scratches the same cinematic feel of running combat as as D D 5e uh because like there's if you have me back on i'm gonna do a whole freaking episode on grid maps because i'm i'm big on on grid maps and things like that um and i love building like boss fights and things like that um, I, I gotta have you on because i want to talk about that stuff too. yeah absolutely no i'm super down for it but point being that tidebreaker was the first game that i played after i decided to not work with 5e anymore that like captured that feeling of like we're gonna do ridiculous anime bullshit and like <laughs> but it's going to be 
supported by an infrastructure of the mechanics. And that was that was very, very much tiebreaker. Um, so yeah, absolutely tune in, talk to Nick, um, look at tiebreaker because it's an excellent game. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so that's the uh, that's next week. I think J Dragon is the week after that. Uh, and then I've immediately forgotten all the schedule from there on. But we'll be here same time, same place, uh, here on Sunday mornings for Coffee Break. Thank you all uh, who have been joining us uh, or listening after the fact or watching after the fact. Uh, you all have yourselves a wonderful rest of your morning, afternoon, evening, wherever it is you are. We'll talk to you later. Bye, everybody. Have a good one, everybody.